Well, this is when it gets tough. You've all had lunch. <laughs> and a nap sounds nice. <laughs> I may have to resort to tap dancing or something up here. No, just kidding. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, think before your word, before your spirit about our thoughts. I pray that you would guide our, our thinking and our understanding and you would show us ways in which we think in ways we ought not and ways in which we ought to think. Please, please guide us, Lord, and t teach us and instruct us and convict us and encourage us by your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So last night we thought about communicating with our great God, our God who is wise and powerful and loves us so much. What a privilege that is that we have to communicate with him. And this morning we thought a bit about our talk with each other, our conversation, ways in which we can edify and encourage and just help us all strive together as sisters in Christ as he is growing us in Christ-likeness. So in this session, we're going to think about our words to ourselves, which sounds a little strange, but it's so true. Think about it. Who do you listen to the most? Who is always with you? Whose thoughts do you, do you hear? Just your own thoughts. You are always with yourself, and you are always thinking and no matter who else you are with, no matter who, who you spend a lot of time with, no matter what you read, you spend the most time with yourself. And therefore, it is a matter of wisdom for us to think about our thoughts. Most of the time, we don't think about our thoughts. They just kind of swirl around, jumping from thing to thing. Isn't it amazing how quickly our thoughts could go from this to this to this to this? And you wonder, how did I end up over here? As I said this morning, we talk about 100 to 150 words a minute, but we think up to 600 words a minute. That's a lot of thinking, a lot of thoughts going on in our heads. And often we're thinking about important things, the things we need to do, the plans we need to make, the people we need to serve. There's, there's a lot to think about, but there are other times when we're not occupied and focused and our thoughts can just kind of drift along. And sometimes they end up in not a very good place. A number of years ago, I went through a severe postpartum depression. It was after the birth of our second daughter, and it was really, really hard. It was one of the hardest things that we have gone, gone through. I was dealing with panic attacks and anxiety and just thoughts that were so, so dark. And so I want to mention two lessons that I learned during that time, and for which I'm so grateful. First, in God's kindness, we had recently moved back from St. Paul, Minnesota, to Portland, Oregon, my hometown. And I, I was so glad to be back in Portland, but it was hard to go home. I don't know if any of you have had that experience where you move back home. Home is a little different than it used to be, and you are a little different than you used to be, and it can be hard to move back home. But in that process, 
we visited and eventually joined the home church, the church that I had grown up in. The pastor at that time was a gifted biblical counselor, for which I thank the Lord. So I had my baby soon after we arrived back in Portland, and then I was really struggling. So I went to my doctor who diagnosed me with postpartum depression, and he sent me to a secular psychiatrist who I went to see one time. He said, it is going to last a year unless you kill yourself first. That's what, that's what he said to me. I didn't go back. I was like, thank you. So instead of, I mean, you realize this is decades ago. This is a long time ago. Hopefully, hopefully things have changed. But I didn't want to go back to him. So instead, I started meeting with our pastor every other week. I had an appointment with him, just a short appointment, appointment. We would talk. He would pray. But he would, each time, he would type up for me prescription for Jody Ware. He just typed it out. And it would be three or four passages of the Bible to meditate on, to read and meditate. And that became my lifeline. And during that time, Bethany, who was three at at the time, she said to her grandmother, Mommy needs to read her Bible. That's where she gets her strength. And I don't think that's a bad thing for a three-year-old to learn. And honestly, God's Word has been my lifeline in a, in a deeper way ever since then. So I'm grateful, grateful for that lesson. Second, in God's kindness, one of the books that I read was Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression. It's a really good book. Um, it's the first place that I read this truth. He wrote, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? We have to learn to talk to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. If we just listen and let our thoughts go where they will, we can so easily go down a path of self-focus, of self-pity, of complaining, of anxiety, of self-indulgence, judgmentalism, legalism. There's just so many ways that our thoughts can begin to go off course if we just let them go. We need to learn to monitor our minds. So I'm grateful for this opportunity that we have to think together about our thoughts. How can we grow in monitoring our minds and in guarding against unhelpful or sinful thoughts. Again, there's so many things that we could say. I mean, books have been written. We're just going to touch the surface, look at a few things. I first want to look at two foundational thoughts of what we ought to think, and then look at the grid that God has so graciously provided in his word of how we are to think, and then a couple of ways in which we should not think. So first, two foundational thoughts that we are to think. We need to remember regularly. One is the gospel. The gospel. As believers, we cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is our only hope. Let's think just a bit about what the gospel is. I love the clarity and the simplicity of Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers or sisters... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you preached, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, 
If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is what we believe, and this is how we are being saved. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised in victory over sin and death. I love this gospel summary in one of my favorite songs, Before the Throne, verse 2, because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free, and God the just is satisfied. Is that not a precious word? God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That is precious truth that should be foundational to our thinking every day. Jesus did what I cannot do, and now by faith God views me as clothed in his imputed righteousness. This great exchange, I know you know this, Jesus took my sin upon himself. He paid the penalty I could not pay. As we read in in that great hymn, Rock of Ages, be of sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Save from wrath, Jesus has paid the penalty that I owe, that I owed. Make me pure. Jesus has defeated the power of sin. And then that hymn continues with glorious gospel truth. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. These words point out a vitally important reason for us to remember the gospel every day. We are such excellent forgetters. And I think at least many of us are kind of spring-loaded toward legalism of some sort, some kind of self-righteousness, looking to what we bring, <laughs> what we bring to our salvation. This, this song instructs us that we bring nothing. We are naked, helpless, and foul. So let's be encouraged. Let's think regularly, frequently that we can rest in the atoning blood and imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let's let that be foundational in our thinking. A second thing I want to encourage you to think on regularly is the love of God. Many years ago, I heard a woman speaking at a conference make this statement. She said that women find it more difficult to believe that God loves us than men do. Now, I don't know if that's true. Honestly, I don't talk to a lot of men about what's going on in their hearts, but I do talk to a lot of women, and I do think there is, there is something to that. For some reason, we women find it difficult to believe that, that God loves us. I, I think there could be a number of reasons for that. Maybe you had a difficult father, and that, or a, even an absent father, a harsh father, that could impact the way you think about your heavenly father and your relationship. I, I think our culture is 
kind of hard on women. And just the emphasis on, on appearance, uh, on youth. Uh, there, there's a lot of factors that make life challenging for us women. But we need to live our lives not based on what we feel or what we think, but on what God's word tells us. And it is so clear in his written word that he loves us. It's demonstrated in the word incarnate, in Jesus' willing sacrifice to humble himself, to come to earth as the God-man, to live a life of perfect obedience and to suffer to the point of death on the cross. This is true, and this is love, and this love must be something on which we meditate regularly. I want to read to you a little bit from the writings of John Bunyan, the the Puritan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. This is what he said in commenting on Romans 5, 8, where we read, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, in the hour of temptation, it is hard for the soul to hold fast to Christ's love. There is nothing that Satan sets himself more against than the shining forth of the love of Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Satan does not want us to believe that Christ loves us. Satan makes God out to be a fierce destroyer and Christ a withholder of his love. But the true knowledge of God's love delivers us from all this. For this purpose, Christ bids us to continue in his love. Faith in Christ's love disperses and drives away all such fogs and mists of darkness and makes the soul rest in the promise of eternal life. It helps us to grow up in him in all things. Here spring forth the riches of his love that the eternal word for the salvation of sinners should come down from heaven and be made flesh. This act of condescension displays such love that can never fully be understood. In this, his love was deep, broad, long, and high. We know his great love when we consider all the glories, all the benefits, and all the blessings laid up in heaven. Who can understand his love? Oh, friends, we need to be women who regularly think about, pray about, read about, contemplate the love of God. And let that wipe away some of the mists, some of the incorrect thinking that can just take over in our minds. So two foundational things to think about regularly, the gospel and the love of God. Now, let's think a bit about how we are to think. God in his kindness has provided a helpful grin in Philippians 4, 8. I know you're all familiar with that verse. Let me read it for us, Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's such a helpful verse and it provides a grid through which we can run our thoughts. How are my thoughts lining up with the things that I am supposed to be thinking? Just reading through that list is refreshing, isn't it? Just restores our soul to a sense of rightness, of truth. 
These are the things that we are to focus on, the things on which we are to let our minds linger. God knows us best, and he knows how best we function, and he knows how best we ought to think. He gives us this list to redirect our thoughts back to what is most important. This verse also tells us that God knows we have a measure of control over what we think about. Hmm. That seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? We feel like our thoughts just fly into our head. We have no control over it. God's word tells us otherwise. He gives us this list and says, think on these things. Martin Luther has a quote that is helpful here. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And that's true, isn't it? Thoughts can just come into our minds, but we do have a measure of control over the thoughts that we allow to play over and over and to ruminate on them. Think of that glorious refrain that is repeated three times in Psalm 42 and 43, where we get this beautiful example of the psalmist talking to himself. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. That's a great example of talking to ourselves instead of just listening to ourselves. I'm feeling cast down. I'm discouraged. I'm sad. Why? Why are you cast down? Trust in the Lord. Great example. So we can look at our thoughts and see where they come up wrong or short, especially those thoughts that really do take root, that we play over and over repeatedly. That's why we need to look at our thoughts and be aware of what kinds of things do we think about over and over. So we can look at them and see where they are out of line, and then we can look at this list of better thoughts. These are these. These are ways in which we are to think. So let's look at this list together. Think about how it might inform our thinking. We are told to think about things that are true, are true. I think that is foundational. We'll spend a little bit more time here. It is so vitally important. How many of the thoughts that plague us, that build a nest in our hair, are true, are actually true? How do we know what is true? We listen to the word of God. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. The word of God is true. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient. It is reliable. It is authoritative. It is the truest truth we can possibly learn and know. We cannot say that about any other source of information. The Bible is uniquely true. And it must be the source for our thinking. Sometimes what we are tempted to believe that our thinking is true, it might be, but it might not be. We're tempted to feel like our emotions are true. They might be, they might not be, but God's word is true. Aren't you so grateful for that? Think if God had given his revelation orally and it had been passed down from generation to generation and I mean we couldn't trust it could we you, you know that old game telephone when you say one thing around the room and it ends up so different by the time it's been passed through 15 people what if that had been God's deliverance of his revelation we could never trust it through through the centuries but God in his perfect wisdom gave his 
gave us revealed truth written down. I'm just so grateful. So we have three enemies that hinder our thinking about truth. As we mentioned last night, the world distracts and entices us with false values and false influences. Our own flesh wages war against our souls and tempts us to live in prideful self-reliance. And Satan is the great deceiver, the father of lies. And he's working as hard as he can to keep us from thinking truth. So here are just a few of what I think are common lies that we women tend to believe with some help from the book Lies Women Believe by Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth. Just some common thoughts. God doesn't love me. I think that's a common thought or a common way that we feel. I would be happy, content, not fearful if I had her abilities, looks, friends, husband, home, whatever it is. No one else struggles like I do, so I dare not be open about my fears. I am not worth anything. I I have heard people say, um, I despise myself. I loathe myself. Oh, that's just grievous. That's such, such a lie from the enemy. God is not really good. God is not really good. Not good to me. Again, we need to remember that God defines good. I have my rights. You may think that. You may feel that in a particular area. I have my rights. What right do we have? What what do we truly deserve? Eternal separation from God and, and judgment on our sins. My sin isn't really that bad. That's an easy way to begin thinking. That's not really that bad. Or conversely, God cannot forgive what I've done. I'm too far gone, too far beyond his grace. A lie. It's a lie to think I am too busy to read my Bible and pray. (laughs) You're not. I'm sure you're busy. I'm sure you have lots to do. I'm sure you could carve out a few minutes to read your Bible and pray. Maybe a little less time on this. Uh, I shouldn't have to suffer. It's hard when suffering comes into our lives, isn't it? It's tempting to think God doesn't love me. But God's word tells us that we will suffer. That is some of what God uses to purify us, to make us more like Christ. Here's a lie I think we fall prey to. If I feel something... It must be true. Oh, ladies, we can feel a lot of things. And sometimes we can feel things that are exact opposite about a minute apart, right? We feel. Some of our feelings might be accurate, but we need to examine them. Do these feelings line up with truth? When you are aware of lies that have taken root in your thoughts, lies that have built a nest in your hair, in your hair, It can be helpful to look at scripture that counteracts that lie with truth and memorize that. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. Let's get back to the grid in Philippians 4.8. Second on the list, we see honorable. Our thoughts are to be honorable. That means noble and reverent and dignified and respectable. Those are good words that we don't hear very often. 
But this is some of what God values. These are things we are to think about. Our thoughts are to be just, right and righteous by both divine and human standards. What is truly just? Oh, how we need to learn from the God of justice. Our thoughts are to be pure, innocent, holy, chaste, clean, untainted. How we need to guard our eyes and our ears and our mind and our heart. Input matters so much. For those of you who are parents, maybe you've had this experience that Bruce and I have had. When our children were young, we thought, oh, let's show them this movie that we used to watch. It's so funny. And then you put it on, and you're like, ah, stop the video. <laughs> I don't want my kids to see this. And you're just so shocked. But it's wonderful how becoming a parent kind of sensitizes you to impurity. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Lovely, lovely. What a lovely word. Pleasing, amiable, beautiful in character. There is so much in our culture today that is unlovely. And we want to cultivate a taste for that that is lovely. Commendable, which means positive and constructive and reputable. Excellent, morally virtuous, and then worthy of praise. Things that ought to be praised, admired, approved. It's so helpful to read through this list and think about your thoughts. And also think about what this list reveals about the character of God. These are, these are beautiful, worthy, right, and true things that we are to be thinking. And it is helpful for us to examine our thoughts. So how do we apply this grid? What am I feeding my mind? What thoughts do I let take root and then bear fruit? Am I actively filling my mind with the truth of God's word so there is less room for thoughts that are untrue, not commendable, not praiseworthy? What is more praiseworthy than God and his character and his works and his ways? Do I think about those things often? As I fill my mind with God's truth, there will be less room for thoughts that are false and unlovely and untrusting fearful, envious, discontent. So when you or I become aware of some of our repeated thoughts that are not true and not pure and not lovely, what should we do? First, we should confess that to the Lord. He knows it, but tell him, I have been thinking some things that are just not true, things that are not in accordance with your word, things that show my heart is anxious and I'm not trusting you the way I ought whatever the case, confess it and ask him to help you think rightly. Even this verse, Philippians 4a, tells us he cares about what we're thinking about and he wants to help us think about the the things that he wants us to think about. So we want to replace those thoughts with what is true and pure and lovely. And God wants to help us do that. Let's say your thoughts reveal that you're overly anxious about things. I think that's a particular tendency, a temptation for us women. Confess that to him and then 
read your Bible and pick out a few texts that address that particular issue and memorize them and meditate on them. Call them to mind when your mind starts going down that path of anxiety. I can share this from my life. Um, I, I have heard the most repeated command in the Bible is some variation of do not be afraid. Do not fear. I think it's like two or three hundred times in different ways in the Bible, which I love that because God knows us well. He knows our tendency to be afraid. And it's often that that command is often connected with some version of I am with you. Do not be afraid because I am with you. We need to think about that. That is true. God knows how tempted we are to be afraid and how quick we forget that he is with us. And I can testify to his grace in this area. I used to be an A1 first-class worrier. I worried about everything. I worried about what might happen. I would think about the worst possible thing that could happen. And, okay, if that happens, what will I do? What will I say? What will I think? You know, I would just plan ahead for the worst possible thing. Every time my husband traveled, I could just picture the policeman coming to the door and telling me the plane crashed. Okay, what am I going to do now? You know, I just would plan for that. And as soon as something I'd been worrying about happened and it was done with, my mind would just automatically go, okay, what am I going to worry about now? What's the next thing that is coming? Kind of addicted to worry. I mean, that's just sick. But that's the way I used to think. And the Lord has helped me so much through his word, through looking at passages, studying his word on passages about not being anxious because he is with me. And I can tell you, I hardly ever worry. It's just one of his evidences of grace in my life. So I commend that to you. Line up your, your thoughts with the truth of God's word, that, that straight edge of God's word. By his grace, bring your thoughts more in line with his word and let that, that truth transform your thoughts. A passage that the Lord has used so much to help me guard my thoughts is Psalm 131, 1 and 2. I love this. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. <sighs> we do not need to occupy ourselves with things that are too difficult, too high, too important, too weighty. I can't handle that. I don't know. I can't figure that out. I don't know what's going to happen. But God does. And I could be like a child at rest, resting in his wisdom and his power and his love for me. Recently, I came across a helpful article about this concept of figuring out what, what the lies are that you're listening to and how to replace them with biblical truth. This is by Katie Ferris. She gives a number of examples. I want to read a few because it might, well, I know it will encourage you, and then you might look it up yourself. Katie Ferris, F-A-R-I-S. Here are some examples. She says the lie, uh, one lie she believed, believed, my trial and suffering mean that God doesn't love me. 
the truth. Nothing can separate me from God's love. God's word, Romans 8, 37 to 39. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another lie. I am alone in my trial. The truth, my triune God is with me. God's word. Jesus is my sympathetic high priest from Hebrews 4. The Holy Spirit is my helper from John 14. And my heavenly father loves me, 1 John 3, 1. Another lie. My trial will never end. The truth, whether in this life or the next, my trial will end. God's word, 1 Peter 5.10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Beautiful examples of using the truth of God's word to combat the lies that we are tempted to believe. So let's look at the thoughts that play over and over in our minds. Let's examine them. Is this true? What is it true? What does God's word tell me? And we place the lie with the truth of God's word. A number of years ago, I read a book that included a chapter by Pat Ennis, on crafting and complementing your life message. She included some spiritual inventory questions I found helpful, and I thought you might too. Here are a few. Do I deliberately bring thoughts of little or big needs to Christ's control? Do I choose to worry about problems instead of casting them on the Lord? Interesting use of the word choose, isn't it? Do I choose to worry, or do I cast them on the Lord? Is a large part of my day characterized by a conscious peace because I have committed the details of my life to God? Do I choose to control my thinking according to the guidelines listed in Philippians 4.8? I love this. Has my thinking this year exhibited increased delight in God and his beauty, works, and people? And is Philippians 4.8 a criterion by which I select my music television programs, and reading material. Let's apply that verse universally to everything that we look at, that we read, that we consider. Um, back on the book table, I saw one of my favorite book, books, Praying Together by Megan Hill. And this is what she says. I, I love this wisdom. She says, contemporary, contemporary sorry, culture recoils against the idea that our desires can be trained. In the modern world, a person's sexual, financial, relational, and professional aspirations and desires are sacrosanct. Isn't that true? Nobody can tell me what I should want. Our desires are seen as highly personal. What's desirable to me is not necessarily desirable to someone else. But the Bible gives us an entirely different picture. God tells us want 
what to want. He bids us to ask him for it, and he promises to answer. So it reminds me of the verse in Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. God is at work at the core of our being, changing our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that beat for him, transforming our minds to think his thoughts more and more, to desire what he wants us to desire. Oh, how we need to be growing in discernment in knowing what the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is in every situation that we face. May we increasingly be taking in the true truth of God's word that it transforms us more and more into his mind, his will, his wisdom, his perspective. As we think, so will we act. How we need God to be transforming our thoughts. All right, now we're going to mention briefly two areas of, in, of ways that we are not to think, but areas that I think we are tempted to think a lot. The first one is comparison. Comparison. It is just such a trap that we are all tempted to, isn't it? I think most of us struggle with comparison. I think that's because we're human. <laughs> And we're sinners, and we live in a culture that is consumed with comparison. Think back 100 years ago or so. Most Americans lived in small towns or maybe in the neighborhood of a city, and they didn't travel much, and they didn't see very much. They just saw kind of ordinary people living ordinary lives in ordinary homes. And now, today we are bombarded with the images of the most beautiful people in the world, and we see and compare ourselves to the cream of the crop, and it's the airbrushed cream of the crop at that, rather than spending time in our own homes or in the homes of a few friends and neighbors, we're invited into the homes of the rich and the famous and the most gifted interior decorators. And you know, if you watch very much HGTV, you're just not going to be happy unless you get a big island in your kitchen. That's a struggle for me. My kitchen is this big. There, I, there's no way to have an island. I have to really guard my heart. <laughs> Instead of listening to our own pastor and being edified by his weekly sermon, which is a, a huge blessing, and I know you all are so blessed by the pastor that you have here at Grace, um, we can listen to the best of the best of the best throughout the years, throughout the world, and that's a great blessing, but it can tempt us to, towards some unhelpful comparisons. Everything has, no, never, excuse me. Okay, for us, comparison is looking horizontally, looking this way, looking at what others have, what they experience, how they are gifted, what their reputation is, and looking back at ourselves and seeing how we measure up. When we look at other people and we measure ourselves against them and come out on top, we think, this promotes arrogance and self-satisfaction. When we look at other people and measure ourselves against them and come out on the bottom, we are tempted to self-recrimination, defeatism, almost sometimes the, to the point of being paralyzed by this fear of man. And you know, whether we're looking at ourselves and thinking, I am so wonderful, or we're looking at ourselves and thinking, I am so terrible, we're looking at ourselves 
And it's all pride, right? It's just this, this spectrum of pride. Self-focus. Where do I compare with other people? We want to be our own gods. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to be significant. We want to be valued by others. Comparison is a very common manifestation of fear of man. It is helpful book when people are big and God is small. Ed Welch says, fear in the biblical sense includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe being controlled or mastered by people, worshiping other people, putting your trust in people, or needing people. As even the title of his book suggests, it's a matter of proportionality. When people are big, that is when their opinion and perspective matters too much to us, then God is small. And we don't pay as much attention to God's perspective and God's wisdom and the opposite is certainly true as well. When people are big, when we are seeking to please others more than to please God, it leads to harmful results in our lives, to, to this competition and comparison and anxiety and insecurity and self-absorption. So what are some signs that we might be fearing man too much and correspondingly fearing God too little? Here are just a few to get you started thinking about your thoughts. If we're hesitant to confront others about patterns of sin. If we're hesitant to confess sin to others because we care too much what they think. Uh, showing favoritism, as we read about in James. Being easily offended or defensive or blame-shifting. Being easily judgmental or critical of others. A number of years ago, when our daughter Rachel was in high school, we were talking about how, how easy it is to be judgmental, just to quick, quickly have thoughts that are critical and judgmental. So we came up with an acronym to help us both grow in that area, SLG, standing for Spring Loaded to Grace. That's how we want to be, rather than spring loaded to judgmentalism, spring loaded toward grace. Uh, more signs that we might be fearing man too much. Sh shading the truth to look better. Putting yourself down frequently, hoping others will disagree and praise you. Hmm. That's very subtle, isn't it? Uh, saying yes to someone when you know you should say no. So fearful of saying, doing, or wearing the wrong thing that you're unable to love and serve and enjoy others. Being consumed with what will people think. Mentally reviewing conversations over and over, obsessing how you might have come across. Having that one person that is ever present in your mind, comparing to her, haunted by her thoughts and opinions. Being a chameleon, acting one way with some people and differently with others. Hesitant to invite people into your home or life because of the risk of vulnerability. And again, just focusing on self, whether in pride or in self-loathing, rather than focusing on God and how you can glorify him. Focusing on others and what they think, comparing ourselves in a myriad of ways, shrinks our world and causes us to turn in on ourselves. God opens our eyes and our hearts and our lives to so much more. Some of you may relate to this. One of my mother's most frequent sayings was, 
what will people think? I mean, I, if I only had a nickel for every time I heard that. But one of my father's most frequent sayings was, if only we knew how little other people think about us, <laughs> which I love. That was a very helpful balancing perspective. But at, at root, so much of our comparison is envy, just wanting what other people have. So how are we to grow in battling comparison, in not giving into sinful envy? There are three passages that I want to mention briefly to help us think through battling sinful comparison. There's a wonderful verse at the end of the Gospel of John, John 21, 21 and 22. You remember how Peter had denied Jesus three times, and then Jesus said to him three times, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, this wonderful restoration. And then Jesus explained to Peter something about how he was going to die. The end of his life, it was going to be difficult. And then Peter turns, sees John, and says, what about this man, right? Again, comparison right there. What about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. I think that phrase from Jesus, what is that to you, is so helpful. And we need to remember it and we need to ask it to ourselves. She has a beautiful house. What is that to you? She has a fantastic marriage. What is that to you? She's such a gifted pianist. The, whoever was playing, so beautiful. I play the piano. I have to fight coveting. It, you, you play really well. It was lovely. What is that to you? Fight it, Jody. She's so popular. What is that to you? She has such an effective ministry. What is that to you? She's written books. What is that to you? Her children are so smart and gifted. What is that to you? She has such an influential job. What is that to you? You follow me. Again, God knows what we need. God knows how we will grow, how we need to grow. And he is committed to doing that work in each one of us. And it will look differently. Uh, one of Jesus' parables, that of the laborers in the vineyard, found in Matthew 20. Um, I love this parable. Jesus describes the master of a vineyard who hired some laborers to work for the day. And he told them he would pay them a denarius. And then later in the day, he hired more laborers. And later in the day, he hired more laborers. And at the end of the day, he's paying the laborers. The most recently hired came first, and he paid them a denarius. So the guys who have worked all day are thinking, oh, boy, we're going to get more because we've worked longer. And they re received the denarius, the promised denarius, and they complained. And what did the master say to them? Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? Begrudge God's generosity? In someone else's life? Oh, friends, we want to guard our hearts against that. William Plumer, one of those wise Puritans said, If thine eye is evil toward thy neighbor because God is good to him, it is proof thou quarrelest with providence. And if God should give to one of his children more than he gives to you, has he not a right to do what he will with his own? God has a right to do what he will. With all of us, we belong to him. He is God. 
When we compare what God has done and is doing in our lives with what he has done and is doing in the lives of others, and we feel we come up short when we envy others, when we're dissatisfied, we are begrudging God's generosity with others. We are quarreling with our wise, sovereign, loving, providence-ruling God. We do not want to begrudge his generosity. We do not want to quarrel with providence. So rather than envying others, letting those thoughts of comparison take root, God commands us to love one another. We see this throughout scripture. It is a command. Let me read a couple of verses from the familiar love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Elizabeth Elliot says this about those verses. Get ready to be convicted. If I imagine that I love my neighbor, let me test my love by asking how glad I am that he has achieved what I have failed to achieve that he has managed to acquire what I have long wished to acquire, that he is loved by someone or by many or in some way that has never been granted to me. If I love my neighbor as myself, there will be no reason at all for the least twinge of jealousy because I will be just as happy that he has what I wanted as I would be if I had it. A high and holy calling Let's ask the Lord to help us be aware of those thoughts of comparison and envy. And this is hard for us today because we see so much more. It's not that our hearts are more given to being envious, but we just see so much more. Guard your mind, guard your heart. Ask the Lord to replace those sinful feelings and thoughts of comparison and envy with an increasingly genuine, true love for others to rejoice when the Lord blesses them. Okay, two minutes more. A second area of influence on our lives, on our thought life, is our tendency to complain. We might not always voice it, but in our minds, our thoughts of complaining can just come in so quickly Something just rubs us the wrong way. We don't like what happened. We're, we're re- resentful of this. Philippians 2 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In the King James Version, it says complaining. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom, sh- whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but I think all means all? I think so. And we need to guard our hearts against our tendency to complain and to grumble. Hmm. Okay, two more minutes. Okay. (laughs) I'm trying to cut, cut, cut. (sighs) Okay, in in a book that I read, I came across a list Uh, for guarding against complaining. This was written by a man named E.B. Pusey, a 19th century church leader. I don't recommend reading his stuff because I don't think he was all that faithful. But he had some good resolutions. So listen to this. Just examples of guarding our thoughts. Allow thyself to complain of nothing, not even of the weather. 
Never picture thyself under any circumstance in which thou art not. Never compare thy own lot with that of another. Never allow thyself to dwell on the wish that this or that had been or were otherwise than it was or is. God Almighty loves thee better and more wisely than thou dost thyself. And never dwell on the morrow. Remember that it is God's, not thine. The heaviest part of sorrow often is to look forward to it. The Lord will provide. So, old English kind of stuff, but these are helpful ways to examine our thoughts. Basically, he's saying, don't allow yourself to think about about things in ways other than what God has ordained, what God has brought into your life. Accept it. Rest in him. Don't be complaining about what God brings or what he withholds. We need to monitor our minds. We need to guard against grumbling and complaining. We may think we hide those sinful thoughts, but they come out in one way or another. The people around you can tell if you're complaining in spirit, whether you express it or not. And more importantly, God knows what's going on in your heart. John MacArthur said, we live in a society that loves to complain. Ironically, the most indulged society the world has known thus far is also the most discontent. Ooh, that's very telling. So, what's the opposite of grumbling and complaining? A grateful, thankful spirit. Let's replace our thoughts of grumbling with thoughts of thanksgiving. This honors the Lord, and it serves our souls to grow in peace and in contentment. Friends, let's feed our minds with the truth of God's word, the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's boundless love for us. Let us fill our minds with, true, with thoughts that are true, trustworthy, honorable, pure, just, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. Let's be aware of those Thoughts that can come in so quickly of envy and comparison and of complaining and discontentment. And let's replace those thoughts with true truth that honors our great God and serves our souls as we grow by his grace. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for each one of us that you would help us grow in monitoring our minds. Help us be quicker to catch those thoughts that are not true and wise and honorable and pure. Help us guard against these things. Help us replace them with true truth from your word. Oh, Lord, may we be women who let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. May that transform our thinking, transform our speech, transform our actions all by your grace in dependence upon your spirit we pray in christ's name amen